If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. And today we are going to be talking with Zach Bronstein about cryptocurrency and all of the things that it can do for your nonprofit organization. Before I introduce Zach and we start that conversation, let me just remind you listeners that in about a week and a half, we have an Ask Dolph Live that is coming up. We did our first Ask Dolph Live last year. It was incredible. Literally, we got lots of people on Zoom, took questions live. I got to answer people's questions. It also fulfilled a childhood dream of mine, which was to be a radio chat show host. Keep in mind that I grew up in the 70s and radio talk show hosts in the 70s were kind, sane people, um, unlike most of the radio talk show hosts today. But nevertheless, it do, it fulfills a childhood dream of mine. And honestly, um, it's just a ton of fun for everybody, including people that participate. So if you're interested in participating in Asked Off Live, go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com and sign up. And now I am just so pleased to be able to introduce Zach Bronstein. Zach is the chief operating officer at Endowment. It has an unusual spelling, and I'm pretty confident we're going to talk about that, but it's E-N-D-A-O-M-E-N-T. And Endowment is a new type of community foundation, and it is a community foundation that is based on crypto. In fact, when you go to their website, it says, hey, Endowment is where crypto meets conscience. And I just have to say, it's such a unique model. Obviously, as crypto becomes more prevalent and also, quite frankly, becomes worth more and more and more every year, it only makes sense that eventually there would be a community foundation that was based solely on crypto. And just so you know, to date, they've granted over $13 million, and they've also worked with 1.5 million nonprofits. And I'm also probably going to ask Zach about that because I did the math, and you know, if those were all grants, that's about you know, $10 grants per nonprofit. So I'm definitely curious to find out more about that. Hey, Zach, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Dolph. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So my first question for you, the spelling of endowment, E-N-D-A-O. M-E-N-T. 
there has to be a story behind that. Yeah, so there is. Uh, our name, Endowment, has uh, a little bit of a, a different name baked into it, and that's DAO, D-A-O, Decentralized Autonomous Organization. This is a buzzword that's in the Web3 and crypto space that essentially speaks about a future type of organization, this new frontier type of organization where rules are written about how the organization will work. And then it becomes a decentralized organization that lots of different folks, lots of members of the community can all participate in the governance of. While that's not the organization that we are running currently, that is the organization that we would like to transform endowment into in the coming months and years as we seek to embrace this ethos that is kind of key to Web3 and crypto spaces. So this really intrigues me, and we can maybe start there. So if if it was designed initially to eventually become very decentralized, what are some of the ways in the design of the organization, of the community foundation, that it's already decentralized? Yeah, so mostly... At the beginning, we are a centralized organization. And in a lot of ways, we have to be. Part of the reason is legal, part of the reason is financial, and part of the reason is because what we're doing is quite new. We are the first completely on-chain 501c3 organization, and we are the first donor advice fund provider that really specializes in cryptocurrency. But to answer your question, how are we decentralized already? I'll talk a little bit about we're going to get into the nitty gritty here, but I'll talk a little bit about how the actual process of donation works. So let's say you are a cryptocurrency holder and you want to become a cryptocurrency donor. Then maybe that's because you want to get some tax relief. Maybe it's because you seek to make an impact and are you know looking to become a philanthropist or more involved in philanthropy. We're kind of agnostic to the reason. If you have crypto and you want to donate it, we'll help make that happen. So that donor will approach our site and they'll essentially get ready to make a donation. When they make that donation, it could be in a lot of different forms because we accept many different forms of cryptocurrency. They could send it in as Ether, they could send it in as the Uniswap token or the Chainlink token, and I could just keep listing tokens until they start sounding really strange. But essentially what happens is they send that token to us. We then take that token and go to a decentralized exchange Uniswap is our exchange of choice and trade out that token for a US dollar coin. This is a specific type of cryptocurrency that is called a stable coin, where the value of the currency is pegged to the US dollar. Essentially, there's an organization out there called Circle Financial. And for every single US dollar coin in circulation, they have $1 in cash or a cash equivalent in an audited bank account. So it's a fiat backed cryptocurrency in a very similar way that dollars in the US were once backed by gold, right? So we immediately exchange it for this US dollar coin. And the Uniswap platform is itself, like I said before, a decentralized exchange. So in that way, we're already embracing the decentralized nature of the crypto space, even if we're not yet able to do things that we want to do in the future, like have all of our board of directors meetings happen on chain have all votes that they conduct happen on chain. When we reach out to members of our community and we want to collect information from them, or we want them to vote on how funds are dispersed from, let's say, an endowment general fund, we would want to conduct that on chain with on chain voting mechanisms. So there's a lot of really cool stuff that we can do in a decentralized space that really isn't possible in the same way 
in a kind of web two environment. So I got to back you up. I know I've got a podcast, but I'm probably not as tech savvy as you. And I think I kind of understand crypto, but I don't think I fully understand chain. And so when you say all of our board meetings eventually be on chain and their votes be on chain, okay, I know what a board meeting on Zoom would look like. How is that different from a board meeting on chain? It's actually not different at all, right? So the board meeting itself is still going to happen on Zoom. People are still going to chat. We're still dealing with COVID, so we're not doing board meetings in person, right? Everyone is going to get together, is going to discuss things like how did the last quarter go? Where are we headed? You know, are there any grants that we need to talk about specifically? Things like that. But then when votes actually happen by the board, whether they are affirming meeting notes from the prior meeting or they're changing internal endowment policies or we're hiring a staff member or getting rid of a staff member, those votes are going to be recorded on the blockchain. That's the only difference is that the way that we're recording all of the ways that endowment is changing or altering our behavior based on how our board of directors is acting is going to be recorded on chain. And the reason that we feel strongly about doing this and we're excited to do this is a blockchain is essentially an indelible ledger that happens to be decentralized, right? So by conducting these votes on chain, we are attesting to exactly what changes we're making and being really clear and transparent whenever we're going through some kind of alteration as an organization. And so just so I make sure I understand, so with cryptocurrency, if I had cryptocurrency, I would have a code essentially, which is like my part of the chain. And if I were wanted to redeem it, I would have to have that code. And so it sounds like if you're doing a board vote on chain, it would be similar where you would have a code as an individual board member that would just be only your code. And when you wanted to vote, you would use that code. That's exactly right. Except let's change just to make the, the, the technical folks happy. Whenever you use the word code, instead it should be wallet. Everyone interacting with the blockchain has a wallet that essentially acts is their decentralized identity. And whenever they make a vote on something, whenever they decide to send or receive cryptocurrency, that action is taking place using their wallet that only they have access to. Interesting. So they're actually taking their vote with a wallet. Correct. So with a wallet, you can do a number of things. The most important things you can do are send cryptocurrency, receive cryptocurrency, and sign transactions. So for instance, now let's bring it back to endowment a little bit. When we have donors come on our site and make a donation and we need them to do things like attest to our terms of service or agree to the no donor benefit clause, they're actually signing that transaction on chain. So in addition to the fact that we have a record of them signing it in our database, we can always look back at the blockchain, which has that indelible record of that signature. All right. And I'm about to ask a legal question. And before I do, I have to say, not legal advice. I'm not a lawyer. I don't think you're a lawyer. Not a no, lawyer. No one should take this as legal advice. But so if, as an example, as a donor uses their wallet to sign a document agreeing to the terms of their crypto donation, is that legally binding? Yes. As we understand it, it is. And again, I also am not a lawyer and this isn't legal advice, but that is our understanding. I, I hear you. And you, don't worry, we also have a disclaimer at the end. We're going to say it again, not legal advice. I was just curious about how that might might be handled. So you've also mentioned that you really want to be a decentralized organization in total. And so what does that look like for your staff? So 
the way that we seek to embrace the DAO structure is likely going to look like a hybrid model for a number of years. Why a hybrid model? So at a donor advised fund, at endowment, there is some information that we collect that's considered PII. When folks are making donations, they have to give us their name, their physical address, and their email in order not to make the donation, but in order to receive a tax receipt for that donation so they can get some relief on their taxes. Collection of that information is never stored on chain. Obviously, we would never want individuals' information stored on chain and available for everybody to see because all data on chain is essentially parsable. Everyone can look at it, even if it's not your information. It is public information. You just need really? to have the technical savvy to look for it. Absolutely. All blockchain okay. information is public. So we store all of that private information off chain in a database, right? Similar to the way that most organizations work or most nonprofits where they have some type of CRM or DRM for their donors, right? While we seek to embrace the DAO structure of being decentralized, doing things like having votes conducted on chain, turning over certain components of our governance to our community. So our community can vote on, should fees be higher or lower? Should this organization be included in disbursements of this fund in this specific month? Things like that. But we do believe there's always going to be a need, at least in the viewable future, there will always be a need to have some staff members that are endowment staff members that have access to the systems and are responsible for securing all of the private information in a way that is not publicly available and is in fact really secure um, and you know not stored on chain, which is really the key and most important piece there. All right, thank you. That That's helpful. As I think about this though, the, the DAO system is a philosophy. And so part of what I'm asking about with staff is like, what as an organization have you done to create a more decentralized ah, and like staff structure and staff process, et cetera? Yeah. So great question. Something that Robbie Heger, my CEO, and I felt really strongly about from the very beginning of you know hiring folks is that it was for us about bringing the best folks to the table, regardless of where they're from. So I'm talking to you from White Plains, New York in Westchester. My CEO lives in San Francisco. We have staff members that live in Manhattan, in LA. They just moved there from Denver. Uh, we have another staff member in Jersey and another staff member in Brazil. Um, obviously, we're not all getting together on a regular basis. That said, we like to try to find ways to gather, be it in online spaces or occasionally in person when the moment allows for it. But we've really tried to create a structure where they're not designated working hours. Everyone is not on from nine to five Eastern or nine to five Pacific or anything like that. And we're trying to create an organization that's really flexible in terms of what we ask from our employees and when we give them time to do that work. A lot of folks that work for us are, as you might imagine, engineers, because we are a completely online organization. We are constantly interacting with the Ethereum blockchain that requires a lot of technical know-how to one, build it and two, maintain it. And the way that engineers generally really like to work is in a very flexible environment. We've had some engineers submit code at two in the morning. We've had some engineers submit code at noon and everywhere in between. We actually have been pretty successful over the course of uh, the last year plus in terms of giving our staff members a lot of flexibility and seeing what happens. 
all the folks that we've worked with so far have given us pretty high marks in terms of the way that we're running the organization and providing for some type of, of decentralized structure, even if we're not at that full goal of an actual decentralized organization operating on chain autonomously. So I'm really glad we're having this part of the conversation because a number of the, of the chief executives and board chairs who I've had conversations with over the last couple of years have actually been very concerned. So they'll say things like, well, if we have more flexibility, we're worried that everything's not going to get done. So what are some of the factors that you attribute your success to in giving employees flexibility? I like that question because I think it gets at something that's really important to us at endowment, which is meeting people where they're at. And it's not just employees. It's also folks that we work with on the donor side or the nonprofit side. It's why we tell our donors we're willing to accept really, if you have a digital asset and there's a liquid market for it, we'll figure that out with you. And that's why on the nonprofit side, we're not saying you have to figure out a wallet and we'll send you cryptocurrency and it'll be a US dollar coin and then you'll get set up on Coinbase and cash yourself out. Forget all that. We're meeting folks where they're at. We're sending people bank wires when we're paying out organizations with, with grants funded by cryptocurrency. That same ethos is embraced for our staff members as well. You know, we have some staff members that have worked at multiple organizations, have had junior roles and also management roles and senior management roles. We also have employees that are brand new. And currently we have uh, one intern that's just finished his first year of computer science in college, right? So obviously lots of different folks with lots of different backgrounds. And the most important thing to us is to meet them where they're at. And it means that every single person that we work with has a, they have a, I guess, a, a different management experience because they're all different, unique people. I think it's one of the, one of the benefits of operating a small organization is that we can have really unique personal relationships with every staff member that we have, and we know how to work with them. I know that you know, staff member A is not online in the morning and his working hours are essentially 2 p.m. to 1 a.m. in the morning. That's when he likes to work, totally fine. We have other staff members that are, for instance, our staff member of Brazil, who is two hours ahead of Eastern time, is always up and Adam first thing in the morning, getting stuff done and signs off uh, a little bit earlier than some of our staff members who live out on the West Coast, right? All of this is to say that I think the, the most powerful tool that I have or that my CEO, Robbie Heger, has in each of our pockets is going to our staff members, forming independent personal relationships with them and meeting them where they're at in terms of the kind of support they need and the kind of management style that makes the most sense so they can accomplish all they want to. So I've got a couple questions now that I want to ask based on that. But my first one is knowing that, how how does that impact your recruitment? Because clearly you have to recruit people who are going to be able to work in a pretty free-flowing, unstructured environment. Absolutely. So for us, one of the most important things when we are doing our recruiting exercises when we're out there chatting with people and bringing them onto the team is that it's, this is not a process that is just conducted by management, but that everyone is involved in some type of interview or assessment process. Some folks are coming on interviews with us. Some folks are reading, uh, reading resumes and giving us feedback. And sometimes we're just getting together in meetings and talking about what this might look like. 
when we're bringing on a new engineer, we're talking to our lead engineer. We're talking to the engineers that they would kind of be peers with and on the same level of. We're talking to the intern who would be our lowest level engineer to see if this person makes sense for someone that they would like to report to and work with and learn from, right? So whenever we make decisions, we try to include all affected parties in that decision. And we find that that usually gets us to the best answer. That said, you're always going to, you know, there's always going to be mistakes made and there's always a possibility that we bring somebody on the team and we're just not jiving with each other. We've been really fortunate that that hasn't happened. And really, we've had a lot of success in growing our team over the last year and a half or so. Um, but it's something that we keep an eye out for. And really, part of the reason why we involve so many people in the recruiting process, because we want to make sure that if we're making a commitment to someone, that they are really going to fit on the team well and be a force multiplier in all that endowment can accomplish and do. You and I are just so in alignment on that. I've always thought of recruitment as the time to really make sure it's a fit and fits a two-way street. And there's no, there's no fix for fit. If it's not a good fit, you can't fix it. So the other thing that I kind of flagged in my head, I just have to ask about it, not throwing stones, let me be clear, but you mentioned, okay, one engineer, for example, might get started at two o'clock in the afternoon and end their day at one o'clock in the morning. And so I do the math and I'm like, okay, that's an 11 hour work day. Is that a general expectation? So that, uh, that's not the general expectation. Just an example, uh, they are not working nonstop throughout that time. You know, they're taking breaks, they're doing dinner, they're stepping away for an hour or two, right? We don't have uh, 11 hour workdays. Typically folks are working eight hour workdays. That said, I can share personally, December was giving season or really the thick of giving season, I should say. And much like other organizations that experienced that hockey stick uptick towards the end of the year, we did as well. Throughout 2021, we raised $28 million of donations. 18 million came in the month of December. So I was working some, some long hours uh, and I can share with you that I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be in January when things are slowing down a little bit and I can get more sleep. And, and I'll share with you, the reason I wanted to ask that question is, I think there's a lot of employers, probably more in the for-profit world than in the nonprofit sector, but I think there's a lot of employers that provide a lot of flexibility. And like one of the big things right now, and we're experimenting this in our consulting practice, is an, an unlimited PTO policy where you could just take as much PTO as you want. But one of the things that we've often seen happen, again, especially in the for-profit world, is when you provide significantly more flexibility or when you offer something that seems very generous, like an unlimited PTO policy, employees are, employees are actually taking less time off and working more than when they said, okay, I've got four weeks a year, let me use my four weeks a year. And that's why I wanted to ask that question because I, I love the concept of flexibility, but also the concept that you know we're all humans. And so I, I also appreciate that that person takes time for dinner and you know maybe does something else and goes to the gym or whatever. So it's not actually an 11 hour workday 220 days. Yeah, and later. I, two things, I guess, no expectation of crazy hours like that, except for myself and my CEO. We signed up for that. We know what we signed up for and we're ready for it. Um, but I, I really like the idea of flexibility as well. We also offer unlimited PTO. We're not counting. We don't want them to count. Um, we also offer, you know, unlimited sick days. We want people to be healthy when they're working and feel good about it. Uh, and I have found that people are taking less time than I expected that they would take 
to be fair, part of this is because, you know, fourth quarter giving season was a little bit crazy. And, and I think folks knew, like, I should stick around. I'll take off in the new year. Um, but something that we're looking at is really using those personal relationships that I was talking about before to remind our staff members that it's really important that they take time for themselves, that they step away from the work. And that's not just for them personally. Their work will be better when they take breaks from it. Absolutely. I, I'll share with you, that was one of my concerns in our consulting practice when we transitioned over to an unlimited uh, PTO policy. And so one of the things that we decided to do was we have an unlimited PTO policy with a minimum. So everyone is required to take four weeks Interesting. off. Interesting. I like that idea. Yeah. So, yeah. Because, you know, so so that way we're like, okay, no, we expect you're going to take care of yourself. And, you know, this is part of your evaluation. The same way we're evaluated, you know, do we, did we, you know, did we do well in our consulting engagements? Did we do well in our external marketing? This is now part of our evaluation. Did you take the four weeks off that you were supposed to? And if you didn't, you know, there's not a lot of things we might actually do a performance improvement plan on, but we would definitely do one on that. And I think that's one that the employee might enjoy the most. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And I'll share with you years, years ago, gosh, this is probably like 2006. And my first, the first time I was a chief executive, um, my board chair came to me. I was about two, maybe two and a half years into the job. And she's like, you don't know this, but you're not taking enough time off. And I can't make you do this, but let me just say, I'm going to strongly encourage that you take at least, and she did this like in July, that you take at least three weeks between now and the end of the year and two of them be consecutive. And I was like, Rhonda, I can't, that's not possible. No, this, this. And she's like, and, and Rhonda was a West Point grad and very high up in a, in a large company. And Rhonda's like, it's possible. Just make it happen. It was the best thing, honestly, a board chair has ever done, quote unquote, to me, if you will, is to be like, no, you're not taking care of yourself. And so, so it was in that spirit that when we created this policy, we're like, yeah, we're just going to have a minimum. And the minimum is four weeks. And if someone's not taking four, a minimum of four weeks off, then they're not taking care of themselves. I think that's a really good approach. And it's, it's so lovely to know when you're working with someone that cares so much about you as a person, not just as you as a worker, that they're saying, this is good for you and you need to take care of yourself. And that comes first. Your, your minimum policy attached to the other end of the unlimited PTO, definitely something that I'm going to be looking at and taking to our board. I know that we've undoubtedly got some listeners saying, okay, Dolph, you've got this guy on and Zach is an expert on cryptocurrency and cryptocurrency donations. And Dolph, you have not yet asked him, hey, you know, how could the soup kitchen around the corner or the Humane Society down the street, how could they take a crypto donation? And so I'd love it if we could explore both ways they could do that through you, but then also some ways they could do it independently. Yeah, absolutely. So let's actually start with how it works independently. Um, and I think that'll give folks a good understanding of what the pain points are and what using endowment would mean kind of differently in that process for them, right? So let's say you are a small nonprofit and you have a donor that comes to you and they say, I want to give you some Bitcoin or some Ethereum or some other form of cryptocurrency uh, as a donation. Usually the next thing that happens is the folks at the organization look at this donor like they have multiple heads and they're like, I thank you, but I don't know how to work with that. Um, the way that you would go forward if you wanted to go forward independently would, would be creating a institutional account on one of the centralized exchange platforms. These platforms are like Coinbase, Gemini, Kraken. 
Uh, if you are New York based, I'm fairly certain you're completely limited to Coinbase. And depending on other states, you can use certain platforms because each state has its own policies in this regard. So you would get set up on one of these platforms. Let's just use Coinbase as an example. Getting set up means you are providing Coinbase with things like your 501c3 accreditation letter. I believe you also need to send your 1023 packet um, and some other you know, information that they, that they ask for. I believe they also ask for the bylaws passed by your board. But anyway, eventually you send them this information. I know that Coinbase is being crushed by requests right now. So going from that step to actually standing up an account likely is going to take something like six, eight weeks or more. And that's just because so many folks are doing exactly this, setting up accounts at places like Coinbase. So once you're all set up, Coinbase allows you to trade on a number of different cryptocurrencies, not all of them. There are thousands, but a number of different ones. And what you can do is you can say, hey, donor, I have this address for accepting Bitcoin or accepting Ethereum. If you send me those tokens, I can receive that as a donation and deal with it effectively. So you provide that address to the donor. The donor sends the tokens to your Coinbase account. And then you, as the administrator of your nonprofit institutional Coinbase account, take whatever they send you, sell it for US dollars, transfer those US dollars into your bank account. Coinbase has a fee of, I believe, 1% on all withdrawals into bank accounts from their platform. And then you'll also need to file the appropriate tax forms in the same way that you would if you received a gift of a different form of asset. So 8282, 8283 need to be filled out effectively and submitted to the IRS in order for everything to be compliant. And on the 8282 in particular, you'll need to say, I received one Bitcoin and I liquidated it for X dollars, right? And then, of course, you'll also need to send a tax receipt to the donor, letting them know, here's what I received, here's how much we sold it for, here is your tax, here essentially is your tax receipt that you can give to your CPA when you're filing your taxes. All right, so now we've reached the end. The nonprofit has received the dollars in their bank account, and the donor has received their tax receipt. So that's going independently. Now let's talk about using endowment. And I'll go through uh, the, the exact steps to get set up at the end, but I'll just talk generally about the process now. Essentially, what you do as the organizational admin is you come on our platform and you claim your organization, which essentially means you provide us a little bit of information about the administrator of your organization, likely you essentially, who do we get in touch with when grants come in or if we have any questions? And when we make a bank wire, where do we send it to? So just some banking information. You fill that out with us. You then provide a piece of bank documentation that substantiates the name of your organization attached to the account number. So for that, we just ask for like a avoided check or wire instructions document to see the name of the org and the last four digits of the account number. And that's it. When a grant comes in, we ask you if you accept it. If you do, we tell the donor you accept it and we send you the gift in cash. Uh, the difference in fee is that our fees, again, 100% paid by our donors, we take half a percent on donation and 1% on granting. So that's a fee of one and a half percent compared to a Coinbase fee of 1%, not at all that different compared to a, a different donor advised fund provider fee, a Schwab, a Fidelity, uh, my old employer, Morgan Stanley has donor advised funds. 
those fees typically are somewhere between three and 5% every year. So substantially less when folks use donor advised funds and endowment, but essentially that's the whole process. We manage the donor giving us the crypto. We manage sending them the tax receipt. We manage the 8282s, the 8283s. We manage selling the cryptocurrency, getting dollars and making that bank wire transfer into the organization's bank account. The only other difference here is that uh, it costs us $15 to make a bank wire. So if you got a grant for $1,015, we would actually send you $1,000. We just shaved the cost of the bank wire off the top of the grant. So we're hoping that in this way, we're making it a lot easier for donors to give their crypto in a compliant manner and get tax receipts for doing so. And also a lot easier for nonprofits to receive crypto-backed grants, but delivered usually as dollars. We do offer optionality for crypto-savvy nonprofits to receive those US dollar coins directly that I was referring to before, but that's probably 1% to 2% of the use case right now. Most folks opt for a bank wire, which makes sense to us as most nonprofits aren't set up to receive cryptocurrency. And even if they wanted to be set up using that independent Coinbase example, that's going to require a bunch of work on the Coinbase side. And they're also going to need to do things like adjust their gift acceptance policy and have their board approve their ability to receive cryptocurrency gifts and probably to hire somebody who is a little crypto savvy to be able to figure out how do I operate on Coinbase? How do I operate in terms of supplying tax receipts in a compliant manner? In the tax receipt, you should really be including the hash of the transaction where the donor actually sent you the cryptocurrency, which is like a record of that transaction happening. Again, a record on that publicly viewable indelible ledger that is the blockchain. And there were at least like 10 words in those last two sentences that probably threw some people off. So it gets, it can get confusing pretty quickly um, when you go through the process in an independent manner. And that's why we created endowment to make the process easier without adding any friction or kind of stress to the process and only adding that half a percent fee on top of what a Coinbase or one of these other centralized exchanges might charge for withdrawals. Thank you, Zach. That's really helpful. And, and I'll also say, I'm not at all surprised that most nonprofits just want it, quote unquote, in cash, because it's the same thing, same thing with stocks. Like a nonprofit may have a brokerage account and they just have a, a liquidate order with their broker so that if a stock donation comes in, it just gets liquidated the same day because they're like, okay, we really don't want to be managing investments. We want to just have the money in the bank. So totally makes sense. Well, Zach, I want to make sure that we have got time to ask you the off the map question. And you've already shared with me that your current job as COO of endowment is your favorite job. But you also have an interesting job that is your second favorite. And I'm hoping you can share a little bit about it. Yeah, absolutely. So the second favorite job that I've ever had was when I was working at an overnight camp up in the Berkshires in Massachusetts as the CIT director, the counselor in training director. So I basically ran a program for nine weeks, uh, two summers in a row, where we had a group of about 45 to 50 17 year olds, most of which had grown up going to this camp, a camp that I myself also went to. And actually the camp where I met the, the CEO of endowment, Robbie Heger, it's where we became friends and how we know each other. Um, and we've known each other for something like 17 years at this point. Um, and it was really one of the most fulfilling roles that I've ever had. You know, taking 
taking kids who have never done anything besides enjoy their summers on teen tours or at camp and are excited to be back at their summer camp that they grew up at, but are feeling perhaps a little apprehensive about taking care of children. Maybe they think, oh, I would only be good for the older units. I don't want to work with any kids who are younger than 13 years old. Or some kids say, you know, I'm only, I'm only good with like the really little kids. And I don't know if I can work with other kids. And I don't know if what I want to do. That's at the beginning. And then at the end, you know, there are, we, we've placed all these counselors sometimes in units that they feel comfortable, they, they wanted from the beginning and they feel comfortable with sometimes in units that they came to camp thinking, yeah, I definitely don't want to work with those kids, but actually it works really well for them. And when the kids leave for the summer, you know, they're clinging to their counselors. They're telling them, you know, you're my favorite counselor. I can't believe that I have to leave you for, you know, the, the off season. And I had such a fantastic summer with you. Um, it's, it's a really meaningful experience, I think, to be a camp counselor, but to be able to have that experience as a 17 year old um, and to be, you know, the, the manager of these folks, seeing them go through these experiences and hearing about the, the way that inter interactions with these kids has helped them to grow as people was just so amazing. It was so impactful and fulfilling. Um, and of all the things that I've done, I think at this point, I'm in my 30s, I I'm a, probably a little too far away in age from uh, counselors in training to really kind of understand what where they're at and what they're going through. Um, but of all the jobs I've done, if, if I could go back in time and do it again, I would more than more than I think anything else, just because it was an amazing experience. And I really wouldn't trade anything for being able to, you know, help really just kids. They're, they're still kids, like help kids figure out how they can kind of embrace maturity as 17 year olds and be responsible for other smaller children. Really an exciting experience for me. What a really great second favorite job. If I may, I also want to I want to make sure that I answer uh, a question that you kind of mentioned earlier in the podcast that we didn't get to, which is the 1.5 million organizations that we work I'm with. so sorry. I should have asked you about that. No yeah. worries at all. I just wanted to return to that. So when we say that we work with about one and a half million different nonprofits, that is the number of nonprofits that are on our platform. And what I mean by that is we're hooked into GuideStar. So we pull in information on every single compliant 501c3 in the US. And when I say compliant, you can be a 501c3, but fall off your compliance and no longer be listed on the pub 78 file from the IRS, which is a file that says, these are all the EINs of folks that can receive tax deductible donations, right? So if you are compliant and you're a 501c3 in good standing, you actually already have a page on the endowment platform. This link will be in the show description. Uh, but if you go to app.endowment.org slash orgs slash, and then your EIN number, you will go to your organization's endowment page, right? Not every organization that has an endowment page has received a grant. However, in 2021, we sent out about 355 grants to just under 250 different organizations. Uh, that was an average grant size of about $36,000. Um, which is really exciting. And about, I think, uh, 186 of those grants were $10,000 or more. And if you put all this together, you can see we have grants as small as $500, $600, $1,000. We have grants 
that are as large as we had one or two seven-figure grants this year, just over a million dollars, which is really exciting to see. Um, but yes, there are one and a half million organizations that currently have endowment pages on our platform, and we're excited to work with all of them. Got it. Thank you for clearing that up. I really appreciate it. So, Zach, I am so grateful that you have come on. Thank you so much. I've learned a lot about crypto donations, and listeners, I hope that you have as well. I want to make sure that you know how you can find endowment. Keep in mind, it's spelled a little differently, E-N-D-A-O-M-E-N-T, and you can go to app.endowment.org, and that's the application where donors can give crypto and also where nonprofits can set up to receive their crypto donations. Additionally, why, if you're still interested and want to know even more, go to docs.endowment.org. And this is where you can learn even more about endowment. You can learn about policies, procedures, etc. I spent some time there yesterday. It's definitely worthwhile for you to spend some time there as well. Hey, Zach, I am so grateful that you came on. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Absolutely. Dolph, thanks for having me. This was great. Listeners, if you found this episode helpful, there's two episodes that I want you to consider listening to. The first is with Abra Annis, who's been on the podcast a few times, episode 174 on helping donors fall in love with your organization. Because the way you get those big donations, whether it's crypto or stock or check, is first you get the donor to fall in love with your organization. The second is the one with Tony Martinetti on how to jumpstart your planned giving program. Again, maybe you want to include crypto in your planned giving program, but first you have to have one before you're going to do it. So make sure you check out episode 193 with Tony Martinetti. Listeners, that is our show for this week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And I say this at the end of every episode, but I'm going to mix it up a little bit. I'm not an attorney, and guess what? Neither is Zach. So now I'm going to just put it all out there. This show is for informational purposes only and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. If that's what you need, please, please find a licensed, credentialed professional with the specialty that you need and get their advice. And if you're not sure who to reach out to or you don't know someone in your region, always feel free to reach out to me at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. I might know someone. Every now and then people are surprised. Like I recently got a request for a potential pro bono attorney out west and I was actually able to make a connection. So always feel free to reach out.